How are we doing this morning? Good, awesome. Hey, if you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to need you to open to three places, okay? Luke chapter 24, uh, Daniel chapter 2, and then Ephesians chapter 2. So Luke 24, Daniel chapter 2, and Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning as we launch out and kind of finish the Advent series here, here at Restoration. Now, before you ask, hey, who's this guy up here speaking? Uh, My name is George Jacobus, and I've lived in Bryan College Station for about 12 years now. Uh, I'm class of 2002. Anybody else in the room, 2002? Yeah, okay, we got a few. I like it. And uh, so class of 2002, lived in Denver, Colorado. I was the associate pastor at a small church up there, which just means I did everything the pastor didn't want to do. And uh, so was there for two and a half years. Then was in Dallas for three and a half years uh, as a youth pastor and associate pastor at my home church. And then uh, for, the la- for eight years, I was the college pastor at Central. Uh, and then now uh, I've worked with a company called Integris and the Flipping Group, and, and now I've kind of struck out and doing some things uh, on my own. But it is a joy uh, to be with you here this morning. Uh, I served with Jonathan and Stephanie on ministry team at Central back in the day, like in old army times, uh, you know, back when we tell stories about the, the good old days, and, and have loved seeing uh, the birth of Restoration Church here in Bryan. Uh, I get to office with Jonathan, and we have been able to talk and kind of reconnect through uh, officing together, and it's been fun to see uh, his character, integrity, and passion for the city Uh, kind of come to fruition right here in this room. And so it's fun to be with you guys this morning. And and really my prayer for us is that that this would be a moment for us. You know know those moments in life when like you realize like everything's going to be different from here on out. You know, like in some of those moments are, are real spiritual. Like I remember the moment when I was sitting at at Hardin-Simmons University in the band hall, Louis Giglio was speaking. I was at a camp called Super Summer, and God just impressed on me this idea of serving the church and being involved in ministry. I remember that moment. Like, I remember the moment when I was, when I was saved, and I sat at the foot of my bed with my mom and my dad talking to me about the love and care of Jesus in my life and the forgiveness that he offers through his son's death, burial, and resurrection. Like, I remember that moment. And so some moments are real spiritual, and some moments are just different. Like, I remember the first home run I hit in Bronco. I still remember it to this day. If you grew up, like, in Dallas, I played Bronco League, and I remember being 12 years old. I still remember the the crack of the bat as the ball goes over the fence, running around. I was thinking, what do I need to do to get that moment again? Like, I remember that moment, like, 40 years ago. Not 40 years ago, but, like, being 40 now. Like, you may think, oh, 40, I thought 45 or 50. You know, Jonathan looks a lot better at 40 than I do. Maybe he uses hair dye or something, I don't know. But 40 or, I mean, like, I remember that moment, being a 40-year-old. I remember the moment getting down on a knee, asking my then-girlfriend, Lindsay Smith, uh, to marry me. Like, that moment is etched in my brain, and, and I would never be the same again. I remember the moment when my oldest daughter, Brooke, was born. And, and we, didn't get, we didn't find out what gender she was going to be, and so we just anticipated what it was. We had a big gender reveal party where some thought it was going to be, you know, boy, girl. We had all these different things going on, and I got to announce to my wife, hey, we are 
have a baby girl and all the family that was there. And I remember um, holding her when they delivered her back to the room. And I thought, okay, the world's going to be different now because of this. Like I remember uh, the birth of my youngest. You know, we went oldest. uh, My oldest is Brooke and she's 14 now. Then we have twins, uh, not planned, but twins, spontaneous. It just happens. And And then we have a bonus baby, Claire. Like she's seven now. She wasn't part of the plan. But I remember when Lindsay called me and said, hey, um, I'm pregnant again. And I was like, that's not the plan. Like, how did that happen? And I remember when she was born here, and I remember holding her thinking, our family is complete now. I thought it was complete before, but now I know it's complete. And so we go through life having all of these moments that change us, that shift us, that change our perspective, that that move us in a different way. And I started with the spiritual side of things because around Christmas, we celebrate a moment in the history of the world that changed everything. A a moment that where God incarnate, who is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus, comes down, lives a perfect life, and then is, res- is crucified on the cross, buried again, and raised in the third day so that we could have life. And at Christmas, we celebrate the beginning moment of a world that will change forever. And so Luke 24 gives us a glimpse of why the world's going to change, why that moment in history is so significant. And so I'm going to read it again. I'm going to start in verse 47, or verse 45, and he says this, Then he opened their minds, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. So, so he tells the story of what's going to happen, or what the prophecies were, and Jesus had already done that, and then listen to verse 47. This is the content of the message. This is what he opened their eyes to see. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So I want to work through verse 47 backwards. Is that cool? Like I want to start in verse 47 and work our way from the end of the verse to the beginning of the verse. Because here's what it says. That repentance, forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now that's a significant thing. That to all nations, to the whole world, his name is to be proclaimed. But that was always the plan. I know this series, we've looked at prophets and psalms and hymns and all these people proclaiming who Jesus is and I want to draw our attention to Daniel Because I find Daniel to be one of the most fascinating prophecies of all the nations happening. Because it gives us a picture. Daniel, when he's talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, shows him and reveals to him the history of what's going to happen. So if you don't know, uh, let me just catch you up. We can turn to Daniel chapter 2. This is an interesting moment in the life of Daniel. And so Daniel is talking to the King Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is tormented because... Dan, because he has a dream, and he wants the dream interpreted. And so he pulls together all of his advisors, all of his aides, and says, hey, I'm having this dream, will you interpret it for me? 
And they're like, yes, king, we will interpret the dream. Just tell us what it is. He goes, no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. If you are who you say you are, if you are the sorcerer, if you are uh, you know, a good aid to me, you will know the dream and be able to interpret it, which is a pretty difficult challenge, right? Like imagine taking a test. It's like, hey, if you really know the subject matter, you'll just know what the test is. So you have to write the test and take it, right? So Daniel goes and prays with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Asks the Lord to reveal what the dream is, and he does. The Lord reveals to Daniel what the dream is. Daniel chapter 2, what we're going to read is Daniel proclaiming and explaining the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And here is what it says, starting in verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell you, the king, its interpretation. <coughs> Excuse me. COVID party fell. Verse 37. You owe the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts, the fields, and the birds of the heavens, making them rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, let me catch you up here. So, so the dream is this. It's a big statue with a head of gold, a trunk of silver, legs of bronze, and then, well, I'm sorry, and then like knees down or like somewhere in here, um, iron. It's a statue of four different metals um, that are all combined together. And so when Daniel is explaining the statue to King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, King, um, yours is the head of gold. What's significant about being the head of gold is if you look at history, uh, there's this historian named Herodotus, and he visited Babylon where King Nebuchadnezzar was ruling, and he visited 90 years after King Nebuchadnezzar, and what he wrote was fascinating because he said that never in his life had he seen so much gold in a city. That King Nebuchadnezzar was fascinated with gold everywhere. And so when he looks at this statue, Daniel says, hey, you're the head of gold. Well, look at what happens next. Verse 39. It says, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. So this is not a popular message, right? Hey, king, you're, you're doing uh, all this work to sustain your kingdom, to build a legacy that lasts forever. But I'm telling you right now, Daniel talking to the king, hey, there's another kingdom coming, and it's going to be inferior to you, yet it's going to take over you. This part of the Bible, or some of Daniel's written in Aramaic, and one of the translations that you can use for inferior is, is actually silver, Head of gold, and then silver. And what's unique about the next empire that comes, that's established in the world, the next world power, the Medes and the Persians, is that they went on a conquering fest of the known world. They wanted to go after nation, and nation, and country, and country. And the way they financed that operation, the way they financed their army going out into the world, was they, they developed a form of taxation for their people. And what's interesting is that those taxes in the Medes and Persian Empire had to be paid with silver. Isn't that fascinating? Babylon, head of gold, King Nebuchadnezzar, fascinated with gold. Then the Medes and the Persians. 
paying all their taxes in silver. And then look at the next one in the middle of verse 39. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the entire earth, will rise up. So we've moved from the head of gold to the shoulders and stern of, bron- of silver. And now we're moving to bronze. And what's interesting about bronze is that Josephus, a historian in his book Antiquities, um, wrote about this prophecy. And he immediately took the bronze imagery here and said, hey, this is the Greek empire. Uh, my mom is Greek, actually, very proud, 100% Greek, grew up on the island of Crete. And so I visited the country of Greece often, or uh, not often, but several times as I was a child growing up. And you walk across the streets of Athens or the island of Crete, and you see bronze everywhere, everywhere. Alexander the Great was actually a remarkable man, and and he was the one that would lead the conquest of all these people, uh, of the Greek people, to conquer the known world. And and, and the way history goes, you can read about it, uh, is like he crosses into known Turkey um, and keeps going and gets to the Indus River and weeps because there are no more worlds to conquer. He's a type A, driven personality, driven man, wants to accomplish. He's an Enneagram 3 before Enneagram 3 was even a thing. He's an achiever. He wants to go. He wants to grow. And he gets frustrated. There's no more worlds to conquer. And so he gets there and weeps. Now, that's interesting. Like, you should read about Alexander the Great because it's a really interesting, under, like, history lesson. But what pertains most to this particular prophecy or this particular passage is this you look at a Mede and Persian member of the army and here's what here was his outfit he typically had a turban like covering on his head a tunic with sleeves and long pants but when the Greek army came to town their outfit their armor was a helmet, a breastplate, a shield, and a sword. What metal do you think they were made out of? Brass. Isn't that interesting? Daniel, before any of these known, wor- known empires had come to rule the world, these big, considered, historical, major empires that ruled the world, he's already talking about gold and silver and bronze. And then the last one is this. In verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. After the Greeks kind of rule the known world, there's a next nation that kind of rises up, and it's the Roman Empire. And if you remember your history books, um, the empire the Roman Empire army was broken up into these legions that had three to 6,000 people in it, and they would come and they would be brutal. They would overtake a city, overtake a country, overtake a geographical region and rule over it. But those legions, in your history books, are called the Iron Legions. 
And so Daniel, in the middle of many hundreds of years before any of these nations come to rise, prophesies to King Nebuchadnezzar, there's a head of gold, there is a torso and shoulders of silver, and then there's this midsection and thighs of bronze, and then there's this iron legs, signifying all the nations of the world. Now, you might be thinking, okay, great, George, what does that have to do with Luke chapter 24? Well, I'm glad you asked, because here, here it is. Verse 41. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, signifying the way the Romans ruled their kingdoms. Uh, verse 43. And as you see the iron mixed with soft clay, so they shall mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Look at verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. So he's saying in the middle of this Roman Empire, there's going to be a kingdom that's going to be established forever. And it's going to be bigger than any nation. It's going to last longer than any nation. And it's going to change the world. Like that moment, it's going to change the landscape of the world as we know it. Now, don't you find it fascinating that in the middle of that moment, in the middle of Roman rule, Jesus is born in a manger, placed in a manger in Bethlehem. Lives for 33 days, travels through the Roman Empire. Disciples, 12 people. Thousands of people come and follow him. His popularity transcends uh, borders, transcends uh, geographical limits. And then in a sheer um, surprise, he is crucified on a cross. And then they would rather have a murderer released than Jesus released. And then he's buried in the ground um, for three days, raises from the dead. And I'll tell you, that moment has transcended every nation, hasn't it? I mean, think about it. Like, the world stops at Christmas. Like, the world fundamentally changes at Christmas. I mean, like, think about what you did. You ate food this week that you don't normally eat. Right? I mean, peppermint overtakes every food group for the month of December. Right? You got pumpkin spice lattes in, January, in November, and then it's like all of a sudden, it's like, you know what I want? I want peppermint hot chocolate. I want peppermint in my coffee, right? Like our food changes. Our, our perspective changes. And the message of Jesus is proclaimed to all nations just like Luke 24 said it would be. That it would start in Jerusalem and it would go out. And if you read the book of Acts and you look at church history, the message of the cross and a Savior being born swept the world and it changed our lives. 
But, but the question is, it's not just like the message, the content of the message is not just that there was this guy that was born. Like there's an actual content that we have to understand and be explained to. So let's go back to Luke and what is the content of the message? And it's, it's the content is repentance. Let me read it to you real quick. Luke 24, verse 47 And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. You see, the message of Christmas is not that Jesus' message or that Jesus is going to be known in the entire world. Like the message of Christmas is that a moment happened where we now have a response to go after. And that response is repentance and forgiveness of sins. So look, the best passage that I know to explain repentance is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, and you, that word you is actually plural in the Greek. So it doesn't mean like you, it means you. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like this is our story. Like, like this is what our life is like. That when we were born, inside of us was, was this sin nature. Like, and if you've had kids, you know that, that kids are born with a sin nature, right? I mean, I've got four kids. Never once have I taught them or have they seen me hit my wife. Yet for some reason, they know how to hit each other, right? Like, we... Um, we, just the other day, my daughter came um, running in uh, to our house. She's 14, our oldest. Her and my son, uh, my 12-year-old son, were playing basketball together in the driveway. And so they were playing, and both of them very competitive. Uh, my oldest daughter, she's small, but she's feisty. I mean, like, don't mess with her. She's small, but she's fierce. Hudson, my son, is, is the better athlete, um, but he doesn't work as hard. But he typically beats her on the basketball court, even though she works hard and hard. And I keep telling her, hey, you're going to be better because you're playing you know, your brother and all these things. Well, my daughter, Brooke, runs into the house and she's like, Hudson's trying to, trying to tackle me. Hudson's trying to tackle me. And I'm like, okay, well, like what happened? He didn't wake up and just say, hey, like I want to tackle my sister now. What did you do? She's like, I didn't do anything, Dad. I didn't do anything. I'm like, okay, okay, well. So Hudson comes in, and he is hot. Like, and when he gets hot, he starts fuming. He can't talk. Snot comes running out of his nose. I mean, like, he is frustrated. And so he's like, Brooke, slung me to the ground after I beat her in basketball. And she's like, no, I did not. I didn't do that. And, I, and in my mind, I was thinking, oh, gosh, I'm taking one word against the other. Well, I realized that our neighbors have cameras on their house that hit our driveway. And I'll tell you, the tape never lies. The tape never lies. 
So sure enough, my son, Hudson, shoots a shot. He swishes it, kind of a lucky one. She takes him by the arm in her best WWE move, goes like this and throws him on the ground. He looks at her, shocked, gets up and starts running after her. Then, in the backyard, tackles her. And then she escapes and runs into me like I'm going to be her savior. Right? Now, has she ever seen me take one of my kids, twist them around by their arm, and throw them like that? Well, maybe one time when I was wrestling with my son. But in anger, has she ever seen me do that? No! She's never seen me do that. Yet inside of us, inside of her, inside of my son, inside of my other two daughters, there is this nature that is sinful. And we're born with it. And that sin is described like following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, like whatever we think our nature is to do that we have a bent towards selfishness, that we have a bent towards lying, that we have a bent towards making our interest our own or ultimate. And that sin that is in our life creates this big gap between us and God. Huge gap, a gap that you can't go over, a gap that you can't jump across. It's not like playing jump the creek in elementary school. You can't jump over it far enough on your own. And then it says, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. You see, the message of the gospel that Jesus talks about in Luke 24 is that we are dead and that we, when encountered with the love and the grace of Jesus, repent for our sins. That this idea of repentance is going one direction and then changing and going another direction and experiencing the love and the free gift of salvation from the Lord so that we can be in right relationship with him. And there's nothing you can do. You know, my son to this day, like this was a couple months ago, my son to this day has yet to play basketball with my daughter again. And she's apologized. And she's, you know, like wants to play again. And he's like, no, 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 no. Maybe we'll have a Christmas miracle here soon. I don't know. But there's nothing my daughter can do to get him to forgive. And in the same way, there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. God's favor is merited on the fact that his son died on the cross, that his son lived a perfect life, that his son, who was sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, came down, lived a perfect life, was, was crucified, buried, and resurrected in three days. And because of that death, we now have life. But what's important to understand is it takes a response from us. It takes a response. 
It takes a moment where we understand the depth of our sin and how it isolates us from God. And then accepting that free gift of salvation from the Lord. What's interesting about Daniel chapter 3 is in Daniel chapter 2, he's Nebuchadnezzar is confronted with this vision and this dream where he's the head. His empire ends. The Medes come and then the Greeks come and then the and then Romans come. But look at what Nebuchadnezzar does in chapter 3. He's like, oh yeah? Oh yeah, like the image is, is of gold head and all these other metals in the body. He's, Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar starts building a golden image. Where he takes the head of gold and builds the gold on the entire statue. And when confronted, or when confronted with the message of what's going to happen, he turns his back and goes a different direction. Isn't that interesting? And so the question that I have to ask us today is when confronted with the message of Christmas, when confronted with this idea that Christ is a Savior of all, what is your response? Is it going to be Repentance and coming after the Lord? Or is it going to be turning your back and going in a completely different direction? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Because these are, in Luke 24, these are Jesus' last words. And the question is, what are we going to do with that message? Because we have to do something. My hope for us and my prayer for us is that it, that message would drive us to our knees and would either start a relationship with the Lord with you or would continue a relationship with the Lord with you. That's my hope, that this would be a moment where we either start or continue to go deeper with the Lord. Pray with me.